0: hey guys I hope you all had a wonderful restful weekend I am really really excited about um, this episode it's lot I'll I'll just say that it's very powerful I mean speaking with Matt um, was such an honor Um, he wrote you know an entire book and I highly encourage you all to check out Sway which um, is kind of what we talk about and he is like the true definition of just someone who really overcame so many obstacles has been through so much and I really hope you all listen to this episode. It's um, really powerful. And I think everyone can take something from this quick um, content warning. We do talk about a lot of heavy topics in here. So, um, you know, if, if you are triggered by anything related to, you know, uh, losing a parent in 9-11 or um, sexual abuse or substance abuse and um, addiction or suicide ideation, I um, just I still encourage you to listen to the episode, but obviously you know with caution and um, pause it when when you want. But uh, I really again do think that you all will just really love hearing from Matt, and I'm I'm excited for you to listen. Uh, before I jump in, as you all know, I'm a huge therapy advocate, and I cannot recommend speaking to someone enough, um, I, I have a partnership with Talkspace, and I'm really honored that they were willing to sponsor my podcast. And for those who either are new to fit therapy or haven't tried it out and are interested in getting started, but don't know exactly how, I really, 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 really encourage you to check out Talkspace. It's the easiest way to get started with therapy. Uh, all you have to do is start a quick questionnaire just outlining, you know, like what you want to get out of therapy. You can even, you can even say you don't know, which is totally fine. And then um, so answer a few more questions and you'll get the three best therapists for you to choose from. Um, and then you get to get started with therapy right away. You get a limited messaging, so you get to text your therapist at any given point of the day, just like how I would, you know, text my friend or uh, my mom if something was going on no offense mom I probably wouldn't text you I would probably text like Lenny or something first but um and you can then also have live video sessions so kind of like Skype with your therapist And in this remote world that's like what we all want to do so I am so lucky that I'm able to give you all a hundred dollars off your first month of therapy which is huge because therapy can cost so much money especially in New York it's like three hundred dollars a session it's insane but um anyways I'm feeding around the bush here. Go to Talkspace.com and enter the code Zoe at checkout to get $100 off your first month of therapy. That's Talkspace, T-A-L-K-S-P-A-C-E.com. Slash, or, then enter code Zoe at checkout and get $100 off. Or maybe it's Slash Zoe. Got to check that out. Anyways, without further ado, here is uh, Matthew Bocce. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace in the City. Today, I am so honored to be here with Matthew Bocce, who is the author of Sway and a speaker on survival, loss, hope, and perseverance. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I think you might be one of the first like authors I've had. <laughs> Definitely the youngest.
1: I'm honored to be one of the first.
0: <laughs> well... Why don't you start off by telling me a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? How old are you? where did you grow up? What's your story?
1: Yeah, I'm from New Jersey, born and raised in New Jersey, um, 29 years old. Simplest way to put my story. I mean, my story, the way I look at it now, at least, is one of resilience and and certainly hope. And um, my book especially details my life after I lost my dad in 9-11 and all the hardships that I endured in the years that followed. And um, but most importantly, I think it's a story of coming through the other side successfully and prospering stronger than ever. So that's the message that I'm trying to spread now, at least in, in telling my story.
0: Yeah. Where in New Jersey are you from again?
1: Um, so New Vernon is the is the town. It's like right next to Marstown.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm from Brumson. I don't know. It's on, okay, the, yeah. on the shore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have a house down in LBI and so we were there all the time. And that's where I was spending the majority of my quarantine last year. So not, uh, not, not the worst not, place, not the worst place <laughs> to be. Yeah. Definitely not the worst place to be except when it kind of changes into that late winter, early spring. And it's extremely depressing down there, but yeah. Um,
0: or if there's, you know, a hurricane, not the greatest. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I guess, I mean, as documented in your book and um, you know, you talk about it, you've had quite the journey with your mental health, like, mm-hmm. I you, you are like the epitome of just perseverance. Um, but I understand that when you were you know in the fourth grade, you lost your dad in 911 um, mm-hmm. which unfortunately is a story that's so common, especially among people from New Jersey, I think and you know obviously mm-hmm. New York and the suburbs. Um, but that seemed to you know propel you into years of rumination about his death so. I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, your what your thoughts were like at this time and kind of, you know, ex- explaining, like, because I think for context, rumination, just for anyone listening is described as the process of continuously thinking about the same thoughts, which can then impair your ability to think and process your emotions. So if, if, in your words, I guess, what was going through your head after that loss?
1: Well, I mean, being, um, well, I look back now and I can see complete addiction traits at that age, at, at the age of 9, 10, 11, 12, right? Um, which is fascinating if you think about it from an outside point of view, especially given my history with addiction. But I look back and um, I think for me, the biggest thing was I, I used to look at that footage initially. Um, I was so impacted by seeing it. And so there was a lot of empathy that would come with it. I wanted to spend my dad's final moments with him. And I thought in watching this stuff and sort of seeing the suffering that presumably he was in something in there. Right. He was in that building, obviously. But whether or not he was one of those people hanging out of those windows of the North Tower, there was some sort of empathy that I felt by looking at it. And I think um, as this obsession of mine grew, there was a lot of, there's definitely an aspect of grief where I couldn't let go Um, because I knew or I thought at least inherently, if I were to let it go and stop looking at it, then I would forget him. And just like everyone else in my life who was presumably, and in my opinion, seemingly moving on, which in time it was, it was important to not forget, but to try to move on. I, I, I wasn't at that point so I felt that I had to be different and in many ways I was different but I felt that I had to sort of step up and this is so weird to put it this way but I wanted to find out more and this incessant quest all it did was destroy me honestly on many levels mentally emotionally um, but I couldn't let it go I, I really couldn't let it go um, and I think that was like really i can pinpoint one of my first struggles and it was and that's just death in general but like knowing okay your dad died that's it they found him he's buried now that's it I, to me it was just the start of everything
0: yeah yeah i think it's interesting and like i've noticed you know in parts of in my past when i've been in a dark place it's like one of those things when you're sad and like all you want to do is watch videos that make you more sad kind yeah. of and, and it's like yeah. a weird counterintuitive you know it's seemingly counterintuitive but i mean there is like psychology behind it it's almost like i i mean i remember i listened to this one um like when i was younger ironically i was like very just fascinated not fascinated that's a really weird word to use but like just suicide was so interesting to me and Mm. like i would just listen to this one podcast which i mean it's an amazing podcast but um it's from the moth and it's like this guy like a 15 minute thing of him talking about his story and i would just listen to it over and over and over again and i would at that like in hindsight i'm like wow i was really depressed like Uh. i should not have been you know listening to that but that's you know all in hindsight again. So, um, yeah, it's almost like for you, you, you didn't have like the closure you needed.
1: Uh, and, and that's the thing, right. I, I did have, it. I just didn't want to accept that I had it. Um, mm-hmm. I think on some sort of level, there was this thought that I would forget him. Um, I was already forgetting little things about him, the way he smelled, the way he talked, all these things. Right. And so I thought to myself, if I let go of his story or the or the the desire to know more, I'm just going to be like everyone else who's already forgotten um, yeah. or or moved on. Um, it took me years, obviously, to get to this point of knowing exactly what happened or what I was sort of overhearing at a young age to be true and to accept that, and then and know that you're not going to find out more. And that's it.
0: Yeah. So I guess. For for context, if anyone listening and, um, and you talk about this in your book, you know you were you really wanted to know like what his exact cause of death was, which is kind of what yeah. you were questioning and asking family members for, and then you finally got that um, answer or what you thought was the answer from one of your uncles. Right. Um. What? How did you feel when you like thought that you you know, finally found this answer that you've been looking for?
1: Do you want me to go into a little more detail with it? Yeah. So my whole issue was um, when I got home from school on 9-11, my mom kept me in school. And when I got home from school, I saw they were replaying the footage. And and on that day, they only showed it one time. It was an image of someone jumping. Sorry, there's a lawnmower. I don't know if it's really loud in the background. No worries. Um, there was an image of someone either falling or jumping from the building. And I remember seeing that and being fixated on that image alone for whatever reason. Um, and I look back and I see probably like in the next couple of years, there were certainly traits of depression there. Um, and anxiety. I, my mom said like, you know, when I saw all the stuff playing on TV, um, it, it destroyed me then, and it would only continue to do so. So, um, my mom had purchased these books that had timeline photos of the day. I found the books. I start going through them, and I see, you know, North Tower is hit, South Tower is hit, and then there's like a still image of someone jumping from the building. There's, it, like, it says, I remember it said like, a person from a person either falls or jumps from the North Tower, which was like a sign of like the devastation of that day or something. It was like an image that portrayed the devastation of that day, which it did, obviously. But, um, I saw that and I was like, wow, like it just brought me right back to that more or that afternoon on nine 11, seeing it for the first time. And, um, and then I was like, wait, like, you know, what if, what if my dad did that? So I had no idea, um, what happened, right? They found him three days later. They came to my house exactly a week after nine 11 to tell us that they found it. And I remember overhearing what they said to my mom, what they found and all this stuff. Um, and, um, as I got older, I started looking at all these images and then I started to see in these documentaries that there was Canada for Sherald families where my dad worked, um, that were identifying their loved ones in photos, blown up photos from photographers of people hanging out of the windows of the North tower. So as a 13, 14 year old kid, I actually reached out to these photographers and was like, Hey, like, wow. here's, this is my story. This is my dad. Like, um, you know, I'd love to be able to meet up with you and see if you can do this for me. I saw this in the documentary and I saw you do this for these families. Can you do this for me? And they never re- responded, thankfully. Um, so I started seeing that and I would see like, okay, they would they would pinpoint their loved one and then maybe it would be them when they, after it was blown up uh, on a bigger uh, projection or maybe it wouldn't, wouldn't be. Um, so I thought to myself, if I could find my father in one of these photos, not even just someone jumping, but someone hanging out of the windows, then I can figure out what happened, right? All I knew was that he called my mom three minutes after the plane hit. He told her what was going on. They got disconnected. He called her again. They kept calling each other back and forth, finally got connected and he said goodbye. His brother, my uncle, then was the last person that we know if we spoke to him. So call it 8.55 to when the building collapsed, I think it was like 10.28. You have all that, you have an hour and a half, basically, of, of gap. So we're, so I wanted to fill it fill it in somehow. Um, and so I got to this point where I was like, there was a really good possibility that he jumped. And uh, I'd asked my mom if she thought that. I'd asked my Uncle Tony, my dad's brother, if he thought that. They'd all tell me no. And they wouldn't give me reasons why they were telling me no. They would just tell me no. And then finally, my mom got to a point, especially my mom, got to a point where she didn't want to talk about this at all. You know, she was in a new relationship. She's just about to get remarried. And she realized finally what this was doing to me. And um, I had this other uncle who was uh, an uncle through marriage that was the only one who would talk about it with me. And he knew ways to cut off all the other people in my life who I was talking to about this stuff. He he told me all these lies, obviously, and, and um, he was all along grooming me, but I didn't know it at the time, right? and um and finally we get to a point in these convers these conversations were continuous too um where he was the only one who would give me details about things so first it was well they had no way out you know and then it was finally yeah your dad jumped and so that led to him using he used my dad's death to sexually abuse me but what he was doing all along was just he finally came to his own realization that that was the final if you even want to call it guard that i had up And by getting, you know, through that, I was just completely exposed. So him telling me that and going through the abuse, the only thing I'm thinking about the entire time really is now I know my dad jumped and now there's hope that I can find him in one of those photos. And that was all it really was for me, um, was not even accepting or or facing the pain that I was going through in that moment, but now realizing or thinking to myself, I could find my father. Wow.
0: So, yeah. I mean, he really took advantage of the pain and the unknowing that was like eating you alive and mm-hmm. used that to his advantage, which is just so horrific. Um I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, shit he went through when he was younger, but like I Yeah, I'd like to
1: think like there's like domestic abuse or something like that because I've always had this conversation with people who are like oh if you're abused and you abuse and like it's not it's not a direct correlation between if you're sexually abused and you do that to someone like you know like there's something that's wrong with that person um and 90 I actually read a study um it was like so many so many times people men especially who do this to a boy or girl young boy or girl went through some traumatic experience and it's not always like a molestation or something like that it's normally like from what I read, at least it was like domestic and physical abuse at the house. And like, basically there's like no authority. And then there's like, you see how their, their father would, you know, physically abuse their mother or the kids. And like, there was all these emotional traumas that caused them to, to basically feel the power over someone Yep. or want to feel power.
0: I think Tim Ferriss talks about that too. Like when he talks about his abuser saying, you know, like deep down, like, there's something, but I mean, it doesn't excuse the actions and, um, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm so sorry that you had to not only go through that at the time, which I think you were like 13 through 16 or something. Um,
1: no. So I was 14, it was like 14 to 15. Okay. Basically, yeah.
0: But then also just deal with the weight of the aftermath of that. So it's, yeah which i mean you didn't talk about for like almost 10, 10 years, years which is yeah wow um
1: and i don't know if i ever would have honestly if i didn't get sober if i'm being completely transparent there's a good po- part of me that probably would not have but i mean all these things came together and we can get to that but um i, I don't know if i would have ever said anything honestly yeah
0: yeah i mean based on you know what in your book like it in it you know the two were obviously correlated um, in terms mm-hmm. of the drugs being kind of a way to escape your thoughts on everything that had happened. So, um, which kind of leads me you know, to my next question, which is, I think everyone has a different experience with addiction, but the, I believe there's a common theme in that people, you know, turn to drugs or alcohol um, to fill some type of void in their life. Um, so I guess, You know, in your words, walk me through kind of how, because I, and I think, you know, sometimes when you see addiction, um, not glorified or romanticized on TV or something, you know, you think like, how could it like you, you, you forget that it's a slippery slope in that it's not just like, you know, zero to a hundred. And, and so I guess. How, walk me through, like, how, you know, at first what was just a reliance on Adderall, which seems like a pretty, yeah. you know, college thing to do, um, and then into a really bad opioid addiction. and um, Yeah, yeah, and, then,
1: and we can touch base on this too. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that I actually left out, and it wasn't for uh, feeling shame or anything like that in terms of things that I did. It was more a matter of I wanted the story to be portrayed not as a drug story and not even as a 9-11 story either. I wanted everything to be fully connected and show how much 9-11 did affect me, but there was other things that also affected me and how it really shaped my life. So I grew up straight A student. After my dad died, my mom was raising four young boys and um, I stepped up for, them and stepped up for myself. And I knew my mom couldn't give me the attention that I needed. I started to learn that at least. So when it came to schoolwork and studying and all this stuff, like I, I didn't take any medication. Like they, I could have, I was a class clown. I was distracting people in class, but when push came to shove, I would always get my work done, always study. Um, I definitely had ADD and ADHD traits as a kid where my brothers, like they were kind of like pushed onto these sort of like couple of them were pushed onto these medications. And I was like, I don't want to take anything. So high school, I drank and smoked weed very recreationally. There was times in high school where weed and even booze, like I got out of hand with it. But then again, I would always come back to, okay, like I need to concentrate and do this and do that. And I had all these goals in my mind and, and I was driven and I wanted to go, to Villanova. That was like my number one school. And I was so adamant on getting in. And um, when I got in and went there, um, I couldn't handle, I couldn't handle the college, the, like the adapting to college, basically. Schoolwork was like hard for me. Like I was in the business school and it was hard for me. It's hard for me to concentrate. It was hard for me to get things done. I was so distracted all the time. And so a kid in my fraternity. So I pledge a fraternity. And then again, you throw another thing into the mix. You have these late nights, pledging and all this stuff. And I had like 830 classes. So a kid gives me an Adderall and it was like basically going on no sleep and taking an Adderall and being able to like, to have, do everything you need to do. Then it got to a point where this is, and this is the reality for someone who actually does have ADD taking Adderall doesn't always provide you with a high. So If you have add or adhd and you're taking that yeah maybe the first couple times you're going to feel like some euphoria but you're not going to have that continued euphoria because your brain is constantly moving and moving and moving and all it does is kind of relax you so then i would be taking it and i still couldn't get things done um i would but it would take a while um i kind of got to a point with it where i was like i don't really like the way this is making me feel sort of the same things that my brothers were saying as kids and other people I knew who took it. And, um, I was like, I want to try something different. Um, I had my first experience of painkillers my sophomore year. And, um, and I remember the first time I did it, just all the things I felt with Adderall and like other drugs and like weed and, and drinking, like was just 10 times greater. And, um, for the first time in my life, I was able to shut off everything going through my head. Um, that was what I was looking for all along, mm-hmm. So, which I never even realized. So um, finally, I'm able to shut all this stuff off. And then at this time, I'm dating this girl and she starts to see that I'm getting a little out of hand with it. And I wasn't even fully addicted. I mean, I was addicted, but not fully to the point of like, I would do anything to have it type of type of addiction. Um, so there was times where I would stop and then pick it back up. And by the time I was a junior in college, I mean, I was a full-blown addict. And, um, then I started throwing other things into the mix Xanax cocaine was there too, but Xanax was another thing I got physically addicted to. Um, and it just got worse and worse. And then I was in and out of treatment and stuff. And, um, I started to supplement it with other things. You know, there was times where I couldn't get pills and there was other things that I would to do, you know, and I had no, I never thought to myself, this kid that I grew up, like, yeah, I went through traumatic experiences, but I grew up in a nice town, nice family. I mean, to think that I would do heroin, like you would never associate that with me. So, um, I started to feel like a lot of shame, you know, looking at myself and like, who am I? Um, so, Yeah, I mean, I had to hit my own, I had to have this emotional, I really, I had a bottom, but in many ways, I would call it a spiritual experience, which is what actually propelled me to go get help. And um, I mean, we can get into that if you want, I can go into more details about the drugs. But yeah, I mean, it was just, I, I knew once I found downers, I guess I should say, for me, that was what I have been looking for. And the fact of the matter is I suffer from anxiety and depression and depression, not as much now. Um, and I can talk about like, you know, antidepressants and all that too, especially in sobriety, but, um, I never took any medications for it. So when I was addicted to Xanax and finally, you know, whereas had I been taking some sort of benzodiazepine as a kid or like in high school or early college as prescribed, maybe I wouldn't have got gotten that way. Right. Maybe I wouldn't have just like sought drugs to numb the pain maybe it would have just been inside, like it would have just been natural. Um, But I certainly had it and it would shut off all these crazy thoughts going through my head and um, all the self-doubt and whatnot. And and that's what I started to chase more and more, I think.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's like a vicious cycle where, you know, as you kind of mentioned, like along with the, the addiction and the abuse of drugs, like, you then were also, you know, depressed. But to like numb those feelings mm-hmm. and to not feel that depression, you would take more, and, and so mm-hmm. it was just kind of an never-ending cycle. And I mean, you mentioned, you know, that you kind of had like a, a rock bottom and then spiritual experience. But I think one thing I think that's interesting. Um, and I remember hearing uh, someone talk about this in an, in another podcast episode, but like. Sometimes, you know, there's more than one rock bottom. Like, you think you've hit a rock bottom, and then there's, or you, th- you know, from an outsider perspective, be like, oh, mm. this happened. Like, obviously, um that's the sign of to go get help. um yeah. And I know that happened with you. You know, there are multiple yeah. things that, for, you know, in the book, I was thinking, okay, maybe this is when he goes, to, you know, mm-hmm gets treatment or like finally sticks with it. Um, but as you mentioned, there was a particular moment where you finally made the call to go to treatment. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Well, the first the first experience that I had with treatment was um, in March, 2013. And there were certainly cries for help that were there, right? Um, my friend Billy died in a car accident. And um, I got home from a spring break trip and I had run out of drugs. I actually smuggled pills with me to the spring break trip because the year prior I had gone thinking, Oh, I'm not an addict. Like I can just go without this for a week and I'll be fine. And I was in opiate withdrawal the entire time and it was terrible. Um, and so I go to this trip, bring this stuff with me. And of course I run out and I had one of my friends meeting me at Newark airport to pick me up with the pills. And, um, first cry for help was like, he died, my friend Billy died in a car accident. I get off this plane and I'm getting bombarded with phone calls, knowing something had happened, but not caring because I was just so powerless and I needed the drugs first. So I got the pills, did them. And then that's when I can start to face what was going on. So I go on this really bad bender at that point in time. And I'm just numbing the pain, numbing the pain. And um, I'm tapped out. I have no money steal my mom's debit card, pull out a bunch of money. She she pick, quickly picked up on it. And then she asked me if I was addicted to drugs. And I finally admitted for the first time ever to someone else, yeah, I'm addicted to painkillers. And I would go into treatment and then my grandfather, my dad's dad, dies while I'm in there. And I already made the decision subconsciously that I'm going to get out and get high. I didn't say it like that, but I was like, I stopped taking the medication they give you which essentially blocks the opioid receptor. So it has to be out of your system in order for you to get high. It, it, it also helps and alleviate some of the withdrawal symptoms, but it needs to be out of your system about two days prior. So I get that phone call literally on day five, my grandfather died. And I said, I said, I'm going to stop taking this medication. So I go on this really bad run. And then again, another attempt at detox that summer, get out. And I somehow put on this facade that I'm okay. Um I don't know how I pulled it off. My mom probably was picking up on things, but I get through my senior year of college unscathed, so to speak, and um get out, and then I get arrested in November of 2014. And that's probably where I look back now and I'm like, this is where I like the the, the moment was there, right? Yeah. But that's the thing, I wasn't ready. Um so I don't get sober until July 2015. Um and basically I go through that last, those last few months of, of pain. Um, but what ended up happening for me was I was put on probation in the state of New Jersey for these, char- uh, for my drug charges. And, um, I was told that I had to be clean, so to speak, you know, I couldn't have any screw ups for a year and, uh, I get put on in, uh, April of 2015. And then they tell me I won't have a drug test for a couple of months, which they were right about. I have the first one and they tell me it's gonna be late July. I get the notice of that drug test in early June. So essentially two months to clean up my act. And uh, I keep delaying the time that I'm gonna do it. And then finally I purchased this detox mouthwash and this these two bags of synthetic urine. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm gonna go in there. I was told it was a mouth swab test and this detox mouthwash would give me 45 minutes of clean saliva. And I'm going to go in there. I'm going to do the drug test. I'm going to be clean and I'm going to walk away. And then that's it. Like they basically told me you pass the first one. They probably won't test you for, I don't know, six months. You may not even get tested again in the year. So as an addict hearing that you're like, wow, one, one and done, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am sitting at that drug test, seeing the mouse swab across on the keyboard on, on my probation officer's desk. And at the last minute, she asked me to go pee in a cup and I don't bring my fake urine. So um obviously I fail for all these things. And she tells me um how I had so much time to clean up my act and you know, ask me when was the last time I got high and I'm lying and lying and finally just start to like admit to all the truth. And she's like, I don't know if this is a cry for help or you genuinely can't stop. And I was like, No, no, no. Like I do want to stop. And so she said she'll give me one last shot and um come back in a month. And if you're clean, great. Drop your charges. But if not, you're gonna go to jail. And so I went home and uh I was by myself and for so many years, I didn't consider myself an alcoholic because I didn't drink during the day. And if I did drink, I wouldn't consume enough alcohol to black me out. But the problem was that I was having so many opiates and other narcotics in my system that I would black out. Mm-hmm. So no one would look at me and say, Oh, you drank so much, right? Because I didn't need to drink that much. So I make a drink I roll up a joint and I'm playing out the scenario, like devil on one shoulder, angel on the other go back in a month with the fake pee, you know, manipulate the test, I'm great, or just go get help. And uh, I walk outside of my house and that's where it all hit me. And um, I, I'm standing out there and I just look at the sky, which was so symbolic and, and similar to the morning of 9-11, so clear and blue. And I start crying and I asked my dad for a sign. I'm like, dad, please give me a sign, I need help. Um, And after my dad had passed away, my mom was told to look for the signs. And in a couple of days after, a fly landed on her nightstand. And that was her sign that it was my dad. And so there was always these visits from the fly in all the years, right? In the years of addiction, in the years of pain and and whatnot. And in that moment in July 2015, it lands on this railing I'm leaning against. And it was looking at me and moving a circle and look and, and stop and look. And I'm hysterically crying. And I pull out my phone and I record it, which this is all, this was not me. Like, I, I really do feel like there was something that was pushing me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't cry in addiction. Like there was, I was just numb perpetually. So I'm hysterically crying and I'm looking at this fly and I'm like, fuck, like, this is, I got to just do this, right? And um, I go inside and I call up a detox for the first time I took action, right? And I said, listen, I'm not sober today. I need a bed tonight. So we can't get you until Friday. It was Wednesday. I said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll take it. And I sent my mom this long message. And I was like, listen, I'm going to get help on Friday. And that was, that was the first, first step.
0: Wow. I mean, I'm a huge believer in like signs and yeah. And I mean, my, my, my family is too. So that's always been kind of like a thing. Um, but that's, Truly amazing, and I and I truly believe your you know dad was there with you mm. at that at that moment. Um, so one of the most like moving parts of your book for me was when you spoke about the group therapy session um, mm. in which men were saying, you know, if you knew me, you'd know yeah. X Y Z, um, and someone said, if you knew me, you'd know that. I was molested when I was younger and then later, you know, another a person confided in you and, and the other men that right. um, the same had happened with him, but with an uncle. And I guess, I mean, kind of, as we talked before uh, recording, there's just a insane correlation between addiction and mm-hmm. um, sexual abuse um, as a child. And so, obviously you didn't know this at the time so how did you feel when you realized that you weren't alone in your experience
1: well when that when I uh was in the sober house and 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 my friend who was older he's older by like probably 10 years um when he shared about that This guy, like I was in a sober house and it was like 18 to 35 year old men. That was like the age group. And there was some that would be a little older here and there randomly, but that was the group. Right. And I was 23. So I was pretty much right in the middle. And, Mm -hmm. um, this guy was like one of the older ones. Right. And he was one that like was heavily respected and was cool. And just like, I just felt so strange in a way because I'm looking at him telling the story And I'm looking around the room with all these other men and there's no one in there, like snickering, laughing, nothing. I'm like, what the hell? Like, you know, like, and I, but I was so empowered in a way because I'm watching him do this and tell this and being so vulnerable. Um, and then, uh, and so as I was telling my story in early sobriety, like after 90 days, they say you could start telling your story right at meetings and whatnot. I'm not talking about the abuse ever. I'm talking about my dad. I'm talking about, the effects that his death had on me and all the other stuff and whatnot. When I saw him talk about that, um, I realized I wasn't alone. And, um, so I started talking about it and I finally got it off my chest and seeing how much better I felt on, on so many levels. Um, I was like, why I'm like, I'm done holding this back. Right. Um, but, most importantly, I think, was the fact that I could talk about this stuff and no one would give me any shit for it. No one would judge me for it Um, because they saw how much strength it takes to be a man and talk about this stuff in front of other men and even women, you know, because as a as a straight male, especially. Right. There's no, And not to say that someone who's homosexual who gets abused has a different story with this because it's it's still traumatic for them. It doesn't matter how. that that they're gay. That has nothing to do with it. It's totally different, you know, but as a straight male and, and the act of it, right. Happening from a man, it's extremely difficult on the mind, right. It's extremely difficult to process because you wonder, I I don't feel like I'm gay, but am I, you know, those are the thoughts that go through your head. But then not only that to accept that, acknowledge that and then talk about it in front of women, that was was my main fear when sway first came out was like and i was in a relationship so it was not a matter of like trying to get girls or anything like that right it was like it was more of like are all these people who knew me or know me going to look at me differently right and the fact of the matter is they looked at me in a much more positive light right i mean not to say that all my actions were excused or explainable and right but more so It takes a lot of balls, excuse my French, but it takes a lot of strength to go in front of, I mean, listen, like some of the TV stuff, I just say whatever it is, I don't care. And to be able to say that and be so open to the world, um, most enlightening experience for me is the fact that men have reached out to me and told me, Mm -hmm. Hey, listen, I heard, like I have friends from high school, kids from high school who are now friends who are not friends in high school, kids that I was like in intimidated by reach out to me and say I read your book three times i want to let you know I was sexually abused right when we got to to the prep not by someone at the prep but, but you know a priest like stories like that right and the fact that he's telling me this and we weren't even that close I mean that's why I do this that's why I talk about this stuff um because someone helped me by telling their story and being vulnerable and if I can do the same for someone else even if I don't know them I mean, that's 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 a gift.
0: I mean, absolutely. I think you know that's one of the reasons I I started this podcast and just the feeling of I, I think that when you open the door a little bit to mm. you know with and sharing something vulnerable, um, it people feel just so much more comfortable sharing their own story. And I think that that's just one of the many powers of vulnerability. And I think especially with something that is surrounded by so much shame and Mm. things like that. And, and I mean, I can't imagine, you know, what that feels like for you and just Mm. must be so empowering and feel like, you know, not that you just like, that, that what you went through had, like, you could turn it around and help others because kind of as Tim Ferriss, you know, mentions, like, I think a lot of the reason that we think the, the no, I think, what did he say? Like, that sexual abuse, like, really most likely is 50% done to women and 50% to men, but men just don't talk about it.
1: Yeah. And here's the other thing, too, in my opinion, at least, I feel like as a society, um, we accept that women are raped or we accept that women are molested. But not only do we accept that, we pride them on being able to talk about it, like the Me Too movement, for instance, right? Like, whereas That's extremely important and that needs to be done. But then I feel like in many ways, men aren't at that point of being fully vulnerable and being able to say, I went through this, right? Without a fear of judgment or a fear of being less masculine for yep. instance, right? And that's where I think the change really needs to happen, right? Is the fact that men can talk about this stuff and it doesn't have to define them and it doesn't have to dictate how they live their lives, but it's the reality that they went through something like that and it's okay to talk about it, you know?
0: Yeah, if anything, it just shows more strength, I think. Yeah. Um, I guess, so what advice would you give to someone, I guess, either you give two pieces of advice either you know someone who's struggling with addiction and and let's say like you know they're looking for that sign but can't maybe they're not spiritual or you know the how would you advise them i guess to just get help even when it seems impossible to do so
1: well, So I've been dealing with this recently with two younger guys who um, know my family and grew up with my brothers and stuff. And, um, and I was the same way we, we focused too much on, Oh, like what am I going to do about my job? What am I going to do about this, that my girlfriend who it doesn't fucking matter? Like in this day and age, especially if you're doing opiates, okay. That's one thing, right? If you're doing even cocaine, I mean, the, the amount of fentanyl that is in this country, in this world right now, you think that you're getting pure Coke, you're, you're 90% not. So the fact is like, whereas like in an old time, like 12 step meetings, AA meetings, etc., where it's like, you know, you keep doing this, you're going to die. No, like you literally, the, the likelihood of you dying now, if you continue is so high, it's scary. Um, I'm grateful in a way that I mean, I didn't experience that stuff. I know though, for a fact, if I didn't get sober when I did, I I probably wouldn't be having this discussion with you right now Um, Mm -hmm. because of the way things were going for me and what I was consuming and how much I was consuming. It wasn't enough. So my advice is don't worry about the outside bullshit because it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Would you rather be alive or would you rather be focusing on a job that you hate and you're going to want to leave in two years, right? Mm
0: -hmm. If
1: You can't find that hope you feel like that hope is gone whatever you have left just latch onto it and hold on to it you know because for me listen I you read in the book I tried to take my own life and it wasn't the best attempt at doing it but every single day I would contemplate going up to my the roof of my high-rise building in New York where I worked and jumping off because I thought that my life would be I would be saving people from heartache and I would be saving myself from more heartache so I think it's important just to to hold on to that last bit of hope, even if it's extremely minuscule, just hold on to it and, and chase it and chase that light. I mean, um, it's not gonna be easy either. You know, that's the other thing. It's not gonna be easy. Um, but it will be the most fulfilling thing you can ever do for yourself.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think that's so true. And just, you know, to to all points, like even just Without the addiction, if you are in that dark place, find just find the light and t- and ask mm-hmm. for help. I think is like ultimately,
1: yeah. It, and also, it
0: seems hard, but
1: well, and people people are afraid that if they ask for help, it, it's it's a knock on who they are as a person, or it makes them less of a person because they can't go through something like this and get through the other side without help. In my opinion, it's it's the most empowering mm-hmm. thing by being able to admit you need help. That takes a lot of strength to do that. A hundred percent.
0: So I always wrap up with a couple of questions um, somewhat related to the podcast. The first, I mean, I feel like you could have a lot of answers to this, but (laughs) what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today?
1: Well, obviously we could talk about all the experiences, but I mean, I think like for me, where I'm going career-wise and stuff like that, That's uh, certainly made me stronger because I've I've gotten a lot of, you know, feedback, negative feedback for the way I want to live my life and the way what I want to do for a living and whatnot. And things are finally coming to fruition for me. I mean, this has been five years of this, right? Like to get Sway published was a three-year process. I just, I kept going back into finance, but um, I think something that's given me, has made me stronger has been I've sort of, I've, I've harnessed my dad's fighting spirit, but that's how my dad was. He was so driven and determined. He came from this poor immigrant Italian family and was told he never would succeed on wall street and he proved them all wrong. And so I think one thing I, I can say for certain is that I have stopped caring about what other people think. And that's made me stronger as a person. Um, but the fact is the reality is that i've gotten through traumatic experiences most of which people go through maybe one of them if you know i don't want to say if they're lucky but you know 90 percent of people aren't going through all of that but i'm but i'm here and i think there's a reason why i'm here
0: yeah no i i completely agree and i really respect and admire all that you're doing like your book was amazing and i am excited to see what you know you bring to the world going forward Um, do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by?
1: Yeah, actually I do. It's, I, I try, I'm trying to be more unique with how I'm signing books for people when I'm like really, uh, personalizing them, but, um, it's a Confucius quote. It's, um, our greatest glory is not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. And that to me, I think symbolizes my life perfectly.
0: Yeah. Wow. That has a lot of me. That's like, has a lot of meaning. Yeah. I mean, in symbolism. I love that.
1: Yeah. It's literally like I think the epitome of my life, honestly. So
0: That's a great, quote. Um yeah. I'm adding this one in. Sure. Do you have a song that you think is kind of like representative of your life? Mm. Or a song, I guess. I need to think of a better way to ask that.
1: No, that's it's a good question. Um, shit, I don't know if I have like one I can say. Um you have to understand there's a complete dichotomy of the music I listen to too. Okay. So
0: Yeah, my, um, my music playlist's like pretty clusterfuck of <laughs> Yeah, that's
1: literally what mine is too. Um I don't know. So do, do you have one that you think represents me?
0: Ooh. Kind of, Um, but like I'm still standing Elton John.
1: I like that, I like that. Yeah, that works.
0: (laughs) If you think of one, let me know. Okay, Um, sounds good. Next question, what do you love most about yourself?
1: So I would say, I got this recently thrown at me. I would say the fact that I'm a problem solver you know, that's like one thing I, I've realized and I never viewed myself as that. But to be honest, my therapist is the one who said he keeps, continues to say this to me. And uh, he said to me how when everything wasn't going wrong or going right with the book, you continue to fi- like solve it and figure out all these issues and, and whatnot. And like, and I sort of also tapped into, I, I, I can be insightful. Um, especially with the things that I go through and how vocal I am about them. Um, But I think that would be, and I I do feel like I I try to spread like a lot of love. Like it sounds kind of cliche, but like I try to be a good person, you know? Um, But I think at the end of the day, like, this is just who I am. Like, I don't, I'm not faking anything, right? Like just the type of person that I am and like the fact that people can go to me for things or, see the genuine authentic me right for what I'm worth and what I can offer to people. That's something I do like about myself. Love. Yeah. Love, love.
0: Amazing. And last question, which is the name of the podcast is how do you find solace in the city and city can be like Philly, New York, whatever you want it to be.
1: Um. Well, like, are you saying like, an, like something I would do?
0: Yeah. Like what, what do you do that brings you peace?
1: Um okay, again, probably sounding very cliche, but um meditation is like something that I've I've there's been a real transformation with how that's impacted my life. But I used to meditate when I was like high and like smoke and be like, oh, I'm like Buddha and like (laughs) now it's I so I I I use it for to help me through stress a lot of the time. I, I really do. Um it's also a part of like 12 step programs, but I use it to help me. And, and sometimes it's the most mundane type of meditation, just sit, literally sitting there and focusing on my breathing in the moment. And the idea of meditation with focusing on your breathing is you shut off your brain. Cause you're focusing on that. But the moment a thought creeps back in your head, you focus back on the breathing and you clear your head. So yeah. it's given me a natural way of dealing with anxiety. And um, that is, is something that definitely provides me solace. I like to write, obviously, so that's another thing too, uh, journaling, right. If I'm feeling a certain way about something or a relationship or emotions, the moment I write it out and I, more, more so recently, which is also tapping into my childhood journaling, like writing it, not typing it, writing it.
0: Same. There's a,
1: a lot of power that, yep. A lot of power that comes out of that, Sorry. you know, no, oh, but hundred you
0: know? percent. I think writing's writing so therapeutic, especially because I, I, it just, I can't meditate. I mean, I, I know yeah. I can, I can like, I'll manifest that, but I, it's hard. For it,
1: No, it's hard <laughs> for people. I, I get it. Um, I, so, and I'll be honest, it's hard for me sometimes too, but, um, but I would be lying if I said that there wasn't relief that comes from it too. Yeah. I need to just practice more. Just practice it. Start off with like, do like five minutes, two minutes, like, and then you grow it out. Try not to fall asleep. That's like the one thing that like they always say.
0: True, I guess if I'm like if I'm doing that though, then at least I like I'm really. You do then you are do-
1: That's what they say. Like the moment you start kind of having that full on relaxation, that's when you know you're like, it's I don't know, maybe too kind much. Doing med- it, right. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where can everyone buy your book? Follow you. Learn more about you. Plug yeah. Everything?
1: Um, okay, so Instagram, I'm keep I've kept it very personal. It's um, Maddie Botch, M A T T Y B O C H. My book, and I have Twitter too. It's the same handle, but I'm not like super active. Um, my book is on Amazon, it's in uh, a lot of local bookstores now, Barnes and Noble, though, obviously a bigger chain, Kindle, Audible, Apple Books.
0: Yep. I listened on Audible.
1: You did okay? Mm-hmm. What'd you think, by the way? Because I wanted to be the one to narrate it but we couldn't work that out with the deal so
0: I, I know he messed it. up
1: some he messed up some pronunciations of things but
0: no I thought it was really good I okay. mean I, it, I knew it wasn't you in the beginning because they said like read by whatever his name was yeah like, Timothy. Um, yeah yeah but I thought it, I just like listening on my walks so okay um, and I really wanted to finish it before I spoke with you so yeah <laughs> but it, I liked it a lot
1: that's another thing though where i think people are different like for me i can't i've never done an audiobook i actually i take that back I did catch 22 as an audiobook um interesting yeah i, I only bits and pieces of it though um but for me i like the the act of flipping the page like paperbacks especially bending the book and like flipping yeah it. Like, I, I, that's the way I am
0: I do too unless it's like for memoirs i like the audible or the interesting the audiobooks like like matthew mcconaughey's book, yeah for example like i wanted to hear matthew mcconaughey read it you know well i mean who doesn't <laughs> want to
1: hear matthew McConaughey speaking? exactly
0: his voice is just like yeah like velvet
1: yeah um,
0: or um M- malcolm gladwell
1: oh he's know? great he's great he's one of my favorites too
0: so i like so you got some
1: similarities voice. yeah so, yeah
0: are you virgo no you're
1: not no i'm a gemini
0: Actually, I remember that because yeah uh, uh, from podcast. Lindsay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, you know, well, it's funny like I didn't realize how much women really like to talk about the, the, the zodiac theology. signs and all yeah. <laughs> i have been very surprised as how much I'm learning in recent times by it so f- about it. so
0: yeah, you know it's whatever you can cling on to. It's like it's something this religion I'll, I'll probably <laughs> preach to so yeah, but anyways. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye, everyone.